0: Sing.
1: Hi there and welcome to Voicebox, Public Radio's wonderful weekly series all about singing and the best of the vocal music scene. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman, and it's great to be here with you again. This weekend, hundreds of thousands of people are heading to Golden Gate Park in San Francisco for the annual Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. Since being founded by banjo player and financier Warren Hellman in 2001, the festival has grown to become one of the highlights of the local cultural calendar, drawing in people from all over the place, way beyond the Bay Area as well. The lineup each year includes big name singer songwriters and bands like Elvis Costello, Emmylou Harris, and Dolly Parton, as well as up and coming locals like the Conspiracy of Beards. And unlike other major festivals in the Bay Area, the public can experience all of these great performers for absolutely free. These days, the festival attracts musicians from a wide range of musical genres, but its roots lie in well, roots music, bluegrass and old time, to be precise. And with me to discuss the world of old time and bluegrass vocals is the festival's founder, Warren Helm. And hi, Warren, thanks for joining me.
2: Oh, Chloe, thanks you. Thanks to you, this is really fun. <laughs> so fun, and we'll really? Talk already. I love talking about the festival. Great. And you know, with the downturn in the economy. We thought we had to lower the price but we thought it would go a little too far to pay people to come other than musicians. <laughs> so we're still we're still charging nothing.
1: Brilliant. W- well, you know, you've got to start start from somewhere, right? You've got to make a little bit of nothing at least. That's
2: right. And make it into much more of nothing. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I should start by telling our listeners that we're not at KALW studio as usual today. Tonight's programme is being recorded at Warren's office in downtown San Francisco. And the reason we're here is because of the wondrous collection of recordings that Warren keeps at his place of work. And ever since I was here last, interviewing Warren for a newspaper article a while back, I've been hankering for the opportunity to raid his music library for vocal music gems. And I'm excited to say that what we're going to be doing today is just that. Before we get too much further, though, I think we should um, take a moment to define some basic terms. Warren, what exactly is the difference between old-time music and bluegrass music? I get confused.
2: Well, so does everybody, but I think Ron Thomason from Dry Branch Fire Squad put it better than anybody. He said, before bluegrass music, there was old-time music, and before that, people just hit rocks together. (laughs) And Nate and I were playing (laughs) in an old people's home over in Marin County, and there was a very old lady sitting there saying, do you play rocks? <laughs> <laughs> so we were, I think bluegrass kind of grew out of old time music, although there's still tremendous overlap between the two, and sometimes it's almost indistinguishable.
1: Mm-hmm. Are there any distinguishing characteristics as well? All?
2: Bluegrass, as it's traditionally played, oh, <laughs> not a very old tradition, but you know, the, the banjo playing is usually what's called Scruggs type picking, which is and invented by Earl Scruggs, it's a different way of picking the banjo. Uh-huh. Uh, this is probably really dull, but no. old time, old time, is is usually a banjo played in a style called frailing, uh-huh. which is probably easier. I don't know. I don't do three finger picking, but it, it's an older style.
1: And that's uh, the style you do then. That's the
2: style I mm-hmm. do because I'm pretty old
1: time. Uh-huh. And that's the the main difference then, the way that the banjo is plucked? I think so, yes. Okay. So how did you get interested in old time and bluegrass music in the first place? Why do you like it so much?
2: I don't know. I I think it's sort of, in a sense, Chloe hardwired. I mean, I grew up, you know, my family went to the opera, went to the symphony, and somehow that didn't resonate. Mm -hmm. And then as I was maturing, There were bands around that would not be called either, really, but like the Lamplighters, like the Mm -hmm. Kingston Trio, like the Highwaymen, which had a strong content of of banjo. And I just loved listening to them. And then I just got sort of sucked more and more into the, into the, uh, I don't know, into the whole theme of it and decided that what I ought to do is learn to play the five-string banjo.
1: Uh And how old were you when you figured out that you wanted to do that? Oh, probably 25. Well,
2: actually, I was 28. And I found a banjo, I lived in New York, I was a big-shot investment banker, in
1: quotes.
2: (laughs) And I decided, well, you know, what I really ought to do is take banjo lessons Uh from Pete Seeger.
1: Uh
2: Uh-huh. So I started trying to call Pete Seeger, (laughs) big-shot Lehman Brothers investment banker. And I finally got some guy on the phone who said, why are you trying to call Mr. Seeger? And I said, I'd like to take banjo lessons from him. Uh He said. That's not gonna happen. And I said, okay, he said, but I can tell you somebody you can take banjo lessons from. So he said, I have a friend in Greenwich Village named Roger Sprung, and he'll give you lessons. Uh, So I went and I took lessons from Roger Sprung, got on the 7th Avenue subway in my three piece suit and my banjo once a week for about two years. And the high point was not my playing the banjo. But I said to, to Roger, I'm about to have my 30th birthday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know some kid who'd play the banjo at my 30th birthday? He said, well, let me ask around. And the next week I came back and he said, uh, well, I have a kid, but he wants 50 bucks. And I said, hmm, okay, what's his name? He said, Don McLean. <laughs> so Don <laughs> McLean played the banjo at my 30th birthday for $50, he wants more now.
1: Yeah, of course. Did you jam with him? No. <laughs> no, you just listened. I was scared. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, what about singing? Where where does that fit in? I mean, you you haven't been singing necessarily for as long as you've been playing the banjo or did you start well, singing I'm, right when you began playing? I don't know,
2: Chloe, if I'd call it singing. I'm kind of a music savant mm-hmm. and these little bits of songs or songs, you know, from forever mm-hmm. ago just are somehow stuck in my mind, like, yeah. you know. Sioux City Sue Sioux City Sue, your hair is red, your eyes are blue. I'd swap my horse and dog for you. And just, I've just got hundreds of, I can't remember anything about what I do for a living, but I can remember songs like crazy.
1: So, and so you've just been singing all your life while you've been listening to these songs uh, Out of then. tune.
2: <laughs> just, well, that's why I chose the banjo, because I can be out of tune with my instrument, and my instrument's also out of tune,
1: so. So two negatives make a positive? That's right. Okay. Do you find it difficult to sing and play at the same time?
2: You mean chew chew gum and walk? You mean things like that? Uh, Somewhat. Yeah. But it's part of, you know, what I do is part of our band. And, you know, it's challenging, but it's sure a lot of fun.
1: So over the next hour we'll be exploring a few specific areas to do with the development and art of bluegrass and old-time vocal music with Warren as our guide. We'll be looking at how ballads have stood the test of time, how songs have served to mark important events in history, and how they have described the struggles of the oppressed, what it takes for an old folk song to gain crossover popularity, and why old-time and bluegrass songs are particularly given to depressing and grisly themes like murder. And finally, how bluegrass and old-time music can sometimes be funny too. But before we get on to all of that, I thought it would be fun to hear a track from heirloom music, the new album by Warren's band, the Wronglers. Um, the track is Foggy Mountain Top, and it features a prominent banjo introduction by our guest on tonight's show, Warren. Two, three, Wonderful. We just heard from Heirloom Music, the new album from The Wronglers. The track was Foggy Mountain Top. If you've just joined us, welcome. You're tuned into Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. This evening's show is brought to you from the office of Warren Hellman, old-time music aficionado and the founder of the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival, which is happening this weekend in San Francisco. Warren is the banjo player and the vocalist with The Wronglers. Now, Warren, when most people think of bluegrass and old-time music, they tend to think of virtuoso fiddle and banjo playing and not necessarily the singing so much. Where do vocals fit into the mix and are they as important as the instrumental side of things?
2: I think absolutely they're as important. I mean, the, you know, the vocals are, or the lyrics are really the basis of the music. They, te- you know, they, they tell the story of our country from beginning till now a lot of the songs, the vocals come from, oh my God, back to the 17th century. And, you know, any, almost anything that's happened, good, bad, sad, happy, in the history of this country, you know, are are punctuated, illuminated by the vocals. So I, I think the vocals are fundamental. Matter of fact, there's a story which maybe defines a part of this mm-hmm. about a guy from New York driving to through Tennessee and he stops by a farmer and he said how do i get to Nashville mm-hmm. the farmer says sing through your nose <laughs> <laughs> but the vocals you know i i'm not disparaging the instrumentals uh-huh. but there tends to be there is a tendency i think as you alluded to to think that gee if somebody can play the banjo really fast yeah. or
1: you
2: know that and that isn't the that that is a part of the music but far from all of the music
1: Yeah, um, the vocal line, I think, also is particularly important when it comes to things like ballads, where the songs are actually telling us a story, right? Um, How have the song lyrics for ballads endured so long, Warren? Well,
2: I think for a couple of reasons. One, they they keep being updated, they keep being modernised. But it is fascinating. The ballads for some of our songs, Barbary Allen being a great example, You know, were brought into this country by the settlers. Probably at the latest in the 17th century, the settlers went back into the hills and you know West Virginia or mostly the 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 southern states, and some of them were isolated. There was a wonderful Mm -hmm. movie called Uh Songcatcher, which told the story, and people went in there and found the ballads being sung in their original version, Bar- Barbary Allen being a prime example. So, that the, you know, the ballads, the, the uh, lyrics have been here, v- various different songs, and have been here since the 17th century. And Barbary Allen, for example, has been updated and updated and updated. You know, sort of virtually every well-known folk, country, bluegrass, uh, old-time band has sung Barbary Allen.
1: Are they keeping always the same lyrics no, or do you no, hear adaptations of the lyrics as well? You or, do. Yeah, and the harmonies and the melodies tend to stay the same or, again, do you hear a lot of variety?
2: You do hear variety. I mean, ex- an example we'll use later. One of the very early songs was uh, Blue Moon of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Blue Moon of Kentucky, I think, was recorded by and written by Bill Monroe. Uh, it's a beautiful version of the, of the song which was later done by Elvis Presley. Yeah. You know, and, and there's just a whole history. I mean, Barbary Allen has been done over and over and over again by a variety of bands in a variety of different different ways.
1: Well, we're going to listen now to a few different versions of, of popular ballads from your music collection, Warren. These two versions of Barbara Allen, first of all, Garrett and Nora Arwood, and, and then the Bob Dylan version. Can you tell us a little bit about these two versions and why you chose them?
2: Well, one, I think, the first is very, very traditional. It would almost go back to the origins of, at least, when it was played broadly. And, you know, the second, of course, is a very modernized version. You could hardly have a bigger gulf between the first version and the second version, bigger change in what it was, how it was performed. yeah, so there just is a huge metamorphosis between the two.
0: In Scarlet Town where I was born there was a fair made dwelling made every year Cry well away. Her name was Barbara. Was in the merry month of May. When the spring was, they were swelling. Sweet William came from away. In Charlottetown, up far from here. There was a fair maid dwelling, and her name was known both far and near,
1: and her name was. Listening to Voice Box with Chloe Veltman, I'm chatting with Warren Hellman, founder of the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival, which is happening in San Francisco this weekend. We just heard two versions of the timeless ballad Barbara Allen. The first was performed by Garrett and Nora Arwood and the second by Bob Dylan. What can you tell us about the voices we just heard, Warren?
2: Well, I think it shows the contrast between... Old, the way old-time way of performing, and and the much more modern way, and in a sense, how much how how different they are, but also how how much the same they are. You know, I, they almost could have harmonized on uh-huh. on the song.
1: Yeah, that's true. But the quality of the voices is very different. The first one sounds so nasal to my ear.
2: Uh, yeah, it may be the recording. Yes, uh-huh. but but I guess we've denasalized. over <laughs> Over the past 20th century, past a century.
1: Past century. Was that a, the way that the, uh, the first artists we heard, Garrett and Nora, Nora Arwood, sang that song, they used a very typical style of singing then? Yes, singing yeah.
2: through the nose.
1: So, yes, yeah, singing <laughs> through the nose, earlier. exactly, as, <laughs> we, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. And I mean, actually, Dylan has quite a nasal quality yeah. to his voice too, now that I think about it. It's just different, more rounded.
2: Do you want another example? Sure. Well, I mean, a, another very interesting example is a very popular song. It's called Wildwood Flower, uh-huh. which almost all of you listeners have heard in one version or another. Uh, the most modern, most current, not recording of it, but, but actually uh, using it as an intro, is Emmylou Harris, who intros a song by starting with how you know, how could she sing Wild, Wildwood Flower? The Carter family originally took the poem that was written in England around 1860 and recorded it as a song. But to think that it's that it's lasted, oh my god,
1: yeah, hundreds, of, hundreds years. of years. Was it a song, do you know, in England um, before the Carters got it, or I did they literally dig up this poem and decide to create music to it do you happen to know
2: well 200 of your listeners are going to refute this but i think it was a poem when it got to the carter family
1: huh interesting all right well let's listen now so here's a a snippet of Lou harris singing how she could sing the wildwood flower which references this song wildwood flower and then we'll hear the carter family's version of the song
0: his finest hour
2: and all he
0: has left of her is a song he first saw her standing by a cabin door
2: Twine with my and
0: waving black hair, with the roses so red
1: and the lily so fair. Myr- this is Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. Warren Hellman, banjo player, singer and founder of the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival is on hand for a chat about old time and bluegrass vocal music. We're on location for this evening's show at Warren's office in downtown San Francisco. The songs we just heard were a version of uh, the song Wildwood Flower by the Carter family. That was the second song. And the first song was Emmylou Harris, who sampled a little bit of the song at the beginning of a tune of hers called How She Could Sing the Wildwood Flower flower. One thing you said to me recently, Warren, is that every important event in history has been put into song. And you also mentioned that, I guess, at the start of the show today, too. I think this is absolutely true. What can you tell us about the relationship between old time music and world events?
2: Well, I, I think, again, it's, it's the way that people express their reaction to what's going on around them, what's what's making their lives better? What usually what's making them them worse? Mm-hmm. But just they sing about the important events, whether it's a dirigible blowing up in New Jersey or or almost anything that's happened. And and if you go back, I don't think there's a more accurate recording of our history, of the history of this country, and I'm sure every foreign country, than you could find. In, in the singing of in in the lyrics of their of, of popular music as a matter of fact I'm told that opera started as lyrics well music and lyrics revolving around events of their day but I know it's been critical in this country that you know and I, we, we've chosen two examples but there's 200,000 mm-hmm. examples
1: so tell us a bit about the two examples that well, we, we have now to talk about this. Importance of the songs in history.
2: Yeah, well, we chose we chose one each from the uh, Revolutionary War and the Civil War, Mm -hmm. and probably most of you are listening remember that those two events occurred, Uh, and these are both songs uh, that I think exemplify the pride or the angst of the people, you know, who were living in that. In that time, mm-hmm. time, and we, you know, we chose a song that probably two or three of your listeners have heard "Yankee Doodle Dandy."
1: Yeah, I think maybe two or three have heard that one before.
2: You know, and and then one that's more, probably a little more obscure about the the Civil War.
1: Yeah, this song "No Longer Gray or Blue," which we're going to hear in a version by Lisa Godino and Chuck Winch. That's a Civil War song. It's not a song I'm familiar with. Um, why did you pick it?
2: Well. I guess because it exemplifies dividing a nation, you know, without any any obvious mm-hmm. differences. I mean, many of the same people who were fighting each other had been working with each other hours or days before. And, you know, perhaps one of the most tragic events. I believe that the 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 casualties in the in the Civil War were greater than greater than any war that the United States has ever fought. Mm. So it is, you know, a, a tremendously critical event in the history of of our country and i thought that those were two excellent examples of where folk old-time lyrics punctuate what's what's happened in this country It, it goes on but you know i could give you and you could give me a hundred other examples, but those are the two we chose.
1: Fine, let's listen now So here's Yankee Doodle Dandy It's performed by Boxcar Willie It's a Revolutionary War song and then we'll hear No Longer Grey or Blue in a version by Lisa Godino and Chuck Winch. It's a Civil War song
0: Yankee Doodle went down upon a stripe at He stuck a feather in his hat Mind the music and the step, and will the girls be handy. Father and I went down the camp along to Captain Good. There we saw the men and boys as thick as hasty food. Yankee-doodle, keep it up. Yankee-doodle dandy. Mind the music and the step, and will the girls be handy?
1: Musket in my head, I charge the enemy. I feel myself falling down to my knees. I hear the boys a- yelling, the rebels' mighty cry. I hit the ground and eat the dirt and pray that I don't die. Oh Lord, can you hear me? Spare me one more life. The dark is closing in, I leave my precious wife. I feel my blood running, flowing like a stream. I'm Chloe Veltman, the host of Voicebox. This week's show all about old time and bluegrass vocals is brought to you from the office of Warren Hellman, financier, banjo player and singer and founder of the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival in San Francisco. We've been talking about the impact of Roots music on historical events and we just heard two fantastic wartime songs. Boxcar Willie's Perky Take on Yankee Doodle Dandy with that wonderful honky-tonk piano in it and Lisa Godino and Chuck Winch's much more downbeat song. It's a version of No Longer Grey or Blue, a Civil War song. So as well as marking wars, bluegrass and old-time songs have played an important role in history in terms of highlighting periods of social struggle. Um, Warren, what kinds of songs were sung during the Depression?
2: Basically, songs that that described or depicted the abject poverty that that was created in our country, the sorrow of our country, the struggle, the sorrow of the people going through it, who were subjected to it. And the struggle of of working people to achieve some kind of progress, equality, equality, and you know a lot of the most famous union songs came out of the depression. Uh, the two we've chosen has to, a lot to do with the with what I just described as the the plight of the downtrodden. Uh, it was actually written before the depression, but it was it certainly was prophetic, and there certainly were hobos in those times. Well, the other is, is I, I, I absolutely love the other song. It was a song written by a woman named Hazel Dickens, who was a great singer-songwriter who died this year. But Hazel was very much a, a protester, was, you know, tended to be upset coming from a working-class family. Her her brother died of black lung disease. Her Mm. family were all uh, West Virginia uh, coal people. And she wrote a song, which uh, I can't really sing myself without crying, but there was a collapse, a cave-in in a mine in West Virginia called the Maddington Mine, and 78 miners died and she wrote the song, performed it at the United Mine Workers Convention that year, soon after the disaster. Mm. And she actually couldn't, had to keep stopping to to stop crying, and it just brought it just broke everybody's heart in the, in the room. And I, I want to play those two if we... I okay. want to hear those two if we can.
1: Yes, yeah, so first of all, we're going to hear your band, Warren, The Wronglers, with a version of Big Rock. Candy Mountain. Uh, it features Jimmy Dale Gilmore. Then we'll hear Hazel Dickens' song, The Disaster at the Mannington Mine.
2: On a sunny day in the month of May A burly bomb came hiking down a shady lane through the sugar he was looking for his liking. As he strolled along, he sang a song of a land of milk and honey, where a bum can stay for many a day, and he won't need any money. In the big rock and mountain, there's a land that's fair and bright,
0: where the handouts paper and the radio tell us to raise our children to be miners as well. Tell them how safe the mines are today and to be
2: That's some, isn't
1: it? Wow, goodness, yeah, that's a, a terrifying and very beautiful song, Warren. Thank you for for letting us play that one. So that was the disaster at the Mannington Mine. It was written and performed by Hazel Dickens. And before that, we heard Big Rock Candy Mountain, which was performed by the Wronglers with Jimmy Dell. Hillmore. This is VoiceBox with Chloe Veltman, and this evening's show is brought to you from the office of Warren Hellman, who's an old time music addict and founder of the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival, as well as a financier. And the festival's going on this weekend in San Francisco. We're chatting about the history, development, and power of old time and bluegrass music. Um, Warren, you mentioned a bit earlier that uh, Hazel Dickens' voice is very important to you, it's very powerful to you, and you have somehow trying to emulate it a little bit. What
2: Impossible b- to do. Impossible, but
1: d- you're striving.
2: Well, just for one song. We're de- we're dedicating the festival this year to the memory of Hazel Dickens, and we've asked as many bands as possible to play one, or m- one of her songs, and the one that we've chosen, although I haven't exactly told the band yet, uh, is Mannington Mine.
1: You're going to be doing the song we just heard. That's going to be difficult to perform, isn't it?
2: Yes, well, I don't know. To make it really weird, the uh, I'm doing a lot of work with the city labor unions mm-hmm. on a pension reform thing, and the SEIU has asked if I would sing the song at their uh, annual, their national convention in Oakland in February. Okay. If I can get through that one without crying, I'll be a better man than I think I am.
1: You're listening to VoiceBox. <laughs> This evening's programme brought to you from the offices of tonight's guest, Warren Hellman, the founder of the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. We just heard Blue Moon of Kentucky. The track was performed by the guy who wrote it, Bill Monroe. Blue Moon was written by Monroe in 1946 and recorded by his band, the Bluegrass Boys. It's the official bluegrass song of Kentucky. In 2002, Monroe's version was one of 50 recordings chosen that year by the Library of Congress to be added to the National Recording Registry and in 2003, the country music television station ranked Blue Moon of Kentucky number 11 on its 100 greatest songs in country music. Now it's probably fair to say that this song's wild popularity came about because of its Crossover appeal. Elvis Presley made it a huge hit on the pop charts, and it was also recorded by Ray Charles, Patsy Cline, and Paul McCartney, to name a few. Warren, why have subsequent generations of singers responded to this song so strongly? In your opinion,
2: I think it has a certain timelessness. It has a certain, I don't know, vibration or, or tempo and, and sweetness that just makes you want to
1: makes you want to sing it. Let's listen now to the Presley version. It's very different to the original, right? Warren, can you tell us about Presley's take on the song? Well, I think he, he took a very
2: different approach. He he certainly modernized. And it shows how, let's say, transportable this music is. Mm-hmm. But he certainly made it sound like something that could be playing, top, you know, could be top of the top of the pops today. Yeah. Uh, and, and very much in his style of music he didn't change it at all changed, didn't even well, he changed the words didn't change the words but
1: right but he did change the meter it went oh. from being a waltz in 3/4 to a 4/4 four four track That's and i right. think a little bit more upbeat right yeah okay well um let's listen
0: blue moon blue moon blue moon keep shining bright
2: Blue moon, keep on shining moon, shine, bright. She goes a print of the back of my baby tonight. Blue moon, keep shining bright. I say blue moon, I've
0: Kentucky to keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. I say blue moon, I've Kentucky to keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. Oh well I hit was on one more light night.
1: You're listening to Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. The subject of tonight's discussion with the San Francisco-based financier and banjo player Warren Hellman is old-time and bluegrass vocal music. We just heard Elvis Presley's cover of a 1946 Bill Monroe bluegrass tune, Blue Moon of Kentucky. Now, Blue Moon, like many bluegrass songs, is kind of depressing. Even in Elvis's upbeat version, it's about lost love. But that song isn't nearly as dark as a song like Murder of the Lawson Family. Warren, can you tell us about this song? What, what is it about and where does it fit into the long tradition of bluegrass songs that cover grisly and depressing themes? Well, a,
2: a common misconception about old time and, and bluegrass music Somebody once said to me, "But it's all so sad. It's mm-hmm. all about killing, uh, killing women, taking their breastbones and making violins out of them." And, wind and Rain" uh, is the name of the song. Uh-huh. You know, and, and it, a lot has been written, just as a lot has been written about everything to do with our lives. That's very sad, but it is part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I think a, an, an important part of of American, Americana music tradition, probably all, ev- all music everywhere are the, are the sort of grisly things that happen in our society. Mm-hmm. And the one we've chosen I think is particularly interesting because it's the story of a man who killed his entire family and himself. And they had written the song between the time of the murders and the funeral. So, the song was actually performed, I believe, for the first time at Charlie Lawson's family's funeral. And it is one of the most sad and grisly songs that I've ever heard.
1: Did the Carolina Buddies write the song?
2: I don't know. I think they did. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, let's listen now to Murder of the Lawson Families, performed by the Carolina Buddies. was the Carolina Buddies with Murder of the Lawson Family. Dark, dark stuff. You're tuned into Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman, and I'm chatting with Warren Hellman, founder of the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival, about the development of bluegrass and old-time vocal music. Now, as you mentioned earlier, Warren, not all bluegrass and old-time music is depressing. Can you tell us about the funny side?
2: Yeah, I mean, in the first place, there are bands that that play this kind of music that in themselves have very funny names
1: mm-hmm.
2: like the Cluster Pluckers,
1: <laughs> Cluster Pluckers, <laughs>
2: uh, and you know I think even the Wronglers could be considered a funny a funny name, but certainly the Austin Lounge Lizards. Uh-huh. I mean that's an amusing name, and and my sense of humor, I guess, or my sense of the humor of this music, I don't know why, but my mother's favorite song probably many of your listeners have heard and detested. Uh, But it was seven old ladies got locked in the lavatory.
1: Yeah, I remember that one well from my childhood. You too? Yeah.
2: (laughs) And, you know, every verse is a treasure, but there's one verse. (coughs) The next old lady, Elizabeth Keister, she was there from Christmas till Easter, till a non-union plumber came in and released her. And nobody knew she was there. That was my mother's contribution to my education in music. <laughs> but you know, there just as a, have been wonderfully funny songs written. I guess Ron Thomason played. Ron Thomason of Dry Branch Fire Squad is the best at sort of uh, digressions. Some of his some of his orations are just classic. But it is is it it is really part of the tradition. People want to look at the sad side, but there sure as hell is a great, happy side to this music. And we'll play you a couple of...
1: Yeah, We're go- well, we're going to play a track uh, in a moment um, called Susie Rosen's Nose, which is by the Austin Lounge Lizards. And you actually introduced me to this band, Warren, when I was last in your office, and you made me laugh a lot Um, Tell us about this particular song. What's it about?
2: Well, first thing is it's such a kind of crossover. I mean, the Austin Lounge Lizards play everything from classical bluegrass, which they make funny songs about, I don't know, health health insurance companies and drug companies. But, you know, they play everything from traditional bluegrass to old time, Mm to country, and in this song, even klezmerish type music, uh, Hebrew type music, and, and it is particularly germane given the amount of body sculpting that's, that's going on and that goes on today. It's a song about a young lady with a nose very much like mine.
0: Mama, what happened to Susie Rosen's nose? It used to look like half a bagel, but now it barely shows. Here today and gone tomorrow, is that the way it goes? Oh, Mama, what happened to Susie Rosen's nose? I went down to the deli with my mama for some blinces. She said, "There's it, Susie Rosen? She thinks she's such a princess. Her family may have money, but culture they ain't got. Then Susie turned, I saw her face, I thought that I would blot. So mama, what happened to Susie Rosen's nose? It
1: used to look like a big matzo ball, but now... Not your grandfather's bluegrass music, that one. That was Susie Rosen's Nose, a track by the Austin Lounge Lizards, which gleefully sends up society's obsession with cosmetic surgery. So we're just about approaching the end of the hour um, and... that's all we've got time for. But before we say goodbye to you on a couple of things, Um, I want to ask you about what some of the great musical acts you've got coming up in the festival might be a couple of things. What are people going to get to listen to this weekend at the festival?
2: Well the festivals, first the festival's gotten so broad and I'm so narrow in my music focus that I'm I'm always stunned when Colleen or Nate or other friends of mine come up and say oh my god you're gonna have so-and-so And I say, oh, yes. And they say, and I've never heard them before (laughs) or of them. Who are you particularly excited about? Well, I'm excited about seeing Red Molly. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Uh, I think they've sort of made their mark on the music scene in in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And I'm very excited about seeing them. Now I'm blanking on the guy's name, but there's a guy, an Irish singer, Seamus Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And I happen to hear him sing uh, Seven Old Ladies and was so enthralled that he's coming out to the festival. And he does. He may not know it yet, but he's going to do uh, Seven Old Ladies. Not do them. He's going to sing about <laughs> Seven Old Ladies.
1: <laughs> okay.
2: So I, I would catch them. Uh, you know, and there's just a ton of other bands.
1: Well, it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic weekend. So I'm encouraging everyone to get over to Golden Gate Park and listen to all these incredible artists and the festival once again is absolutely free to the public so there's no excuse for not heading to golden gate park so thanks so much warren for taking the time out of your busy work day to share your music collection and discuss the wonderful world of bluegrass and old time music it's been smashing raiding your cd collection with you
2: thank you chloe it was really really i knew it would be fun but it was even more fun than
1: i knew it would be and Good, I'm glad. Mm-hmm. To find out more about the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival, please visit strictlybluegrass.com. VoiceBox is an independently produced non profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Victoria Lim, and the membership and development director is John Bischoff. Voicebox needs your support to find out how you can make a crucial tax-deductible donation to keep us on the air. Please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Check out our free weekly podcasts on iTunes and via voicebox-media.org and also visit our homepage to mull over and respond to the question of the week. We love to know what you think of us. Friend us on Facebook. Please follow us on Twitter. And you can also write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org or call us with your comments and questions. Our number is 415 841 4121 extension 3515. That's 415 841 4121 extension 3515. To play us out, Warren and two of his bandmates, Colleen Brown and Nate Levine, have sweetly agreed to play us a tune, End of the Roll Blues, White Lady. Have a songful week.